0: This is BP Technology Outlook. Outlook. Focus on robotics Podcast.
1: When we think about robots, it's easy to feel that we've been waiting a long time for very little to happen. But let's not fall into the trap of waiting for a humanoid C3PO or Mr. Data. Robots do already play a huge part in our lives. It's just that they're doing pretty basic tasks at the moment, and a lot of them we don't see in mass manufacturing or automated warehouses, although, of course, we do see them when they're vacuuming our houses. They tend to be highly specialised one-trick ponies at the moment. Can you believe there's even a robot for extracting the venom from scorpions? Drone technology, though, is starting to get more sophisticated with swarm or team deployment, And if the last few weeks and months have taught us anything, it's how quickly and dramatically our lives can change. So can robotics help make us safer in this COVID-19 world we're now living in? Could they help eliminate risks? I'm Angela Lamont, and I've been lucky enough to speak with people doing some fascinating things with robots. From bipedal walking, to robot hands, and even robots the size of a human cell, to get an insight into how robots may enhance our everyday lives in the future.
2: I'm Rich Walker. I'm the Managing Director of the Shadow Robot Company. About 10 or 12 years ago, we realized that whilst as a company we could do anything in robotics, so could anybody else who was a competent engineer. And so we decided that what we ought to do was to specialize in stuff that we did really, really well that no one else did. And that turns out to be hands for robots. I guess the reason hands are interesting is that they're humans' universal tool. We spend a lot of time kicking things because we're annoyed with it because it's easy and because it's fun. But if we actually want to do something useful, we reach out, we grasp it, we pick it up, we hold it. Just getting a way to move each joint of the finger so that you can tell how the finger moves in a way that's useful to an engineer, I can't say it's easy. There's a lot of complication in there. Machines are fundamentally built differently to things that biology can build. If you look at your finger, you'll see it bends on what looks like a nice rotating point. There's a ball that moves fairly freely against another ball that it's butting up against. There's an elastic tender material holding it there, nothing that measures exactly where it is. And as an engineer, you're like, no, 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 that's all wrong. That's not the right way to build something. So you have to translate that that across into, well, we want something where we have two pieces that are fastened together and rotate about the fastening, and they have some kind of mechanism that lets us measure the angle that they rotated through so that we can understand the position of the, the hand at the moment. And that means you're building something that has to look the same, but is built in a completely different manner. So just getting the physical embodiment, the, the hardware right, is a real challenge before you even start with, and then how do we make it intelligent?
3: My name is Eleanor Dubell. My job is Technology Director in BP's Digital Innovation Organization. I look out at digital technologies in the future and try and understand what impact they'll have on the world, especially on the world of energy provision. And within that, I specialize in robotics.
1: So what is the relationship between artificial intelligence and robots?
3: Well, there's a big overlap, actually. I would say that the artificial intelligence is kind of like the brain of the robot. The element of robotics which allows a robot to learn, if you like, so it allows it to be able to carry out activities and from those learn how to deal with new situations. There are lots of other elements of artificial intelligence which apply to to many other areas of our lives and will apply to many other areas of our lives, but when we talk about robotics, I, I like to think of it as being about the brain of the robot and giving the robot the ability to actually do complex physical things and to learn.
1: And what are the different types of AI we should be thinking of?
4: My name is Morag Watson and I am the vice president or head of the digital innovation organization inside BP. We have a pyramid of how we think about artificial intelligence. And at the lower end, machine learning, pattern matching, widely available, um, good, powerful uh, artificial intelligence, but less sophisticated. And as you go up to a place where artificial intelligence can start doing reasoning, can start doing learning, can do supervised versus unsupervised learning, really high um, order recognition. For us, the pinnacle of um, artificial intelligence is something that we call cognitive computing. Not necessarily the widely used definition of cognitive, but we've used it inside BP to make the distinction. What we think is the technology that actually really does begin
1: to simulate how humans think. So what do you think we should be doing with robots as opposed to what can we do with robots? Rich Walker, Managing Director of the Shadow Robot Company.
2: Where we see the next set of things that we should be doing with robots It's doing things that are dirty, dangerous, difficult, or just plain dull. There's a lot of tasks where people are going into risky environments, and they're doing it usually under very good safety cultures, but there's still risk involved. There's a lot of tasks where people are doing something where it's just physically unpleasant. Bolting something onto the ceiling is fine if you do it once, but if you have to do it all day, every day, you get RSI. Let's put machines in place so that those jobs don't have to be done by humans. And then there are jobs which are just like, why do we still have people doing that? If you've ever looked at a food processing plant, you'll see people spending all day moving tomatoes from a big box to a little box so it can go onto a supermarket shelf. So I guess it's those kind of areas where at the moment either technology can be used to make people's jobs safer, more pleasant, or they can be used to make the jobs more interesting by getting rid of the really boring ones.
0: My name is Mark Miskin. I'm an assistant professor of electrical and systems engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. I manage a small laboratory of undergraduates who are interested in doing research in small-scale robotics. Why you make tiny robots? Um, I think our perspective is that if you want to look at the potential, there's no better place to look than biology. At some level, right, the the fundamental unit of life is the cell. It's this thing that's about, you know, 10 to 100 microns. It's roughly one-tenth the size of a human hair. It's so small, we can't see it. But somehow, through little complicated interactions, sensing, behavior, mechanical things that they do, very much like the things robots do, every form of life on Earth basically exists. I think that's a remarkable fact, right? It's, it's very, very fascinating. And it speaks loudly to why you'd want to build that. If you could even do a tenth of that capability, I mean, the, the ability to transform our world from this micro world, it would be phenomenal. Now these robots are so small. You can make a million of them
1: from one 4-inch silicon wafer. So you've got human cell-sized robots. But
0: what do they do? Uh, they don't do much yet. Um so right now we're happy that they walk. And that's the main the main technical accomplishment. And you know, it's it doesn't sound that impressive, but it actually is. Uh, you have to be able to coordinate motion between your legs, uh, so that requires some level of information processing. You have to be able to do work, right? you have to move the legs to move around. Um, so in a year or so, what we'd like to be able to do is have robots where we can program them, so send them just information, uh, and then they, on their own, get the energy that they need, do what you've asked them to do in their programming, sense their environment, etc. One of the things that we're interested in is working in the biomedical space and starting to explore there. And it's it's kind of a natural line of reasoning, right? So these are the nerves that connect your brain to the rest of your body. Um, and in a lot of cases, right, that nerve is just one cell. And if it's damaged, you're gonna lose a very important function. Um, so one of the things we've been exploring has been deploying robots to do things like uh, regenerative surgeries, um, things that can interface with the peripheral nervous system and see what individual nerves are up to as a way of diagnosing diseases or healing them. And that that fits our bill very well, right? being something where you really want that cell-scale precision.
5: I'm Aaron Ames. I'm a professor at Caltech. Specifically, I'm a professor of mechanical and civil engineering and control and dynamical systems. Uh, In short, what I do is robotics, hence the mechanical engineering and the control theory and the electrical engineering all rolled up into one.
1: So for you, Aaron, why do you think bipedal is the way to go?
5: At a fundamental level for me, I find it enthralling because of its difficulty and complexity you know it's a very hard thing yet deceptively simple you know we we look around every day and people are walking around bipedally with no problem it seems to be a relatively relatively simple task yet the actual mathematics underlying it are so complicated that it's just a wonderfully rich problem from a intellectual level it's it's forever stimulating from a practical level there's lots of reasons why Bipedal walking is incredibly important. At one level, it's very robust, meaning bipedal robots can go lots of places that wheels can't. Um, more generally, we've built our world and our environment to be amenable to bipedal walking. You know, if you think about stairs or, or tight corridors or everything that we negotiate, or most people negotiate every day without any problems, it's really built around two legs. And that speaks to the broader ramifications of thinking about two legs, which is helping people walk better. So if we can understand bipedalism, we can understand how to transition our our discoveries in that domain to helping people walk better or restoring mobility for people. So there's lots of different reasons from robots exploring environments that are built for humans, uh, robots going places that Humans can't go, but we can send robots right now, like Mars, and also helping robots, uh, having robots restore mobility for people that might be compromised in that direction.
1: Why is the prospect of robots exciting for an organisation like BP? When we look at the lower carbon agenda, if
3: we can run these assets more efficiently, that means that we produce less carbon, because more efficient means that we're using less energy to, to run our operations. If we can use robotics to help us monitor methane, for example, this also means that we can use robotics as a key lever in our challenges and reduce our carbon emissions.
4: I think the initial big opportunity is in how we operate our plant and things that they can do that humans just can't do. We've got crawlers that go up and down the risers on um, some of our platforms in the deep water. So you, you're, what you're doing, instead of taking a human and basically hanging them over the side of a platform to be able to do a, an inspection, you've got a robot that can just be there permanently on the riser, go up and down and, and, and do the inspection and communicate back
3: As we look for lower carbon forms of energy, we can think of wind power and offshore wind farms, uh, which tend to be in difficult locations. There's a massive opportunity for robots to help with routine maintenance of wind turbines. We're starting to see development of autonomous robotic devices that can reliably scale up a wind turbine tower, crawl onto blades, much safer than needing to send um, people into these situations and can be combined with other robotic systems like autonomous uh, vessels
4: and drones uh, to, to complete inspections. The great opportunity is that robots can actually go places that humans can't go. They can actually go into, you know, a hazardous situation in a refinery where you never could have had a human before to inspect things and say, actually, we need to do some preventative maintenance on this now. So all these things that we have to think about from a human point of view in our frontline operations, these are things that potentially um, robots could do. We can also look at uh,
3: agriculture, which is another exciting place where robotics is really coming to the fore, both to um, help improve safety, but also uh, to improve efficiency and improve the carbon footprints. Now, this is important because biofuels are uh, essentially uh, derived from um, plant matter. So plants are grown to turn into fuel. Robotics provides a great set of tools for planting seedlings, for harvesting, for monitoring for weeds. But also there are really interesting applications for drones, to do large-scale but high-resolution surveillance of fields to look for patterns in crop growth, in weeds and other problems so that they can be dealt with. This means that it gives the opportunity to massively reduce the amount of pesticides that are used and increase the efficiency with which we can grow plants that can be
1: turned into fuel. What do you think of the challenges to moving forward with making the world more robotic or robot-friendly? Rich Walker.
2: If you ask me what the biggest technical challenge was, I would say it was around seeing the world, actually understanding what you see. Computer vision and machine vision and artificial intelligence vision systems have come on in leaps and bounds over the time I've been doing this. And still, you can't build things that depend on vision to be reliable, just because it's not, it's really hard to see the world. And humans do it partly by seeing the world and then partly by interacting with things and correcting. The other challenge is the expectation one. When you say, let's try using a robot, And trying to say, well, we'll get one thing done first, and then we will do these other things. But the robot at first will actually be quite basic. You can talk to it, but you can only say 10 different sentences to it.
1: Of course, now we're used to interacting verbally with virtual assistants like our smart speakers. But for robots, do we now also need to start thinking about how we make it physically easier for them to exist alongside us humans?
3: I think we will start to design our world for a combination of humans and robots. So it's incredibly difficult for a robot to open a door. This combination of grabbing something, twisting, and then being able to pull with quite a lot of force, but not too much force, and getting the timing right of all of that is is something that's actually quite difficult for a robot to do. Maybe in future we design doors so that it's easy for robots and humans to open them if we're designing new buildings.
4: I think robots will play a huge role in in the future, all the way from things like healthcare and medical research to schooling and education, sports and entertainment. There's not a bit of life that robots won't impact in the future.
3: Last mile delivery is an interesting one. How do you get things to people? people's houses that they perhaps ordered online. There are some great little robots that are sort of the size of a golf buggy that can do that type of last mile delivery really effectively. But actually our roads and pavements aren't brilliantly set up for them. There's been some early trial work and it's been done in in the UK in Milton Keynes, which has an extensive network of paths that's easy for last mile delivery robots to navigate. So maybe that's something as well in the future that we'll start to design our cities with those types of robots in mind because it's much more efficient to get the last mile delivery robots turn up and it won't require the big van and lots of additional packaging to get it to us safely.
1: And when you have a situation like the COVID-19 pandemic, humans may pose the biggest risk to each other. How can robots help with that?
3: I think we're all sort of starting to reflect on just quite what a sort of transformational experience COVID-19 is being for everybody. And we're starting to see people being very creative and finding new ways to use robotics to be helpful in the containment of COVID-19, ways that actually could change the way we operate Um, things like hospitals for example you know part of containing COVID-19 is to limit direct contact between humans because that's how the virus spreads and so we're starting to see uh, robotics being used you know in the early Um, instances of the pandemic in China and in Italy, we're starting to see sort of robot nurses being used. It means not just that the robot is able to keep track of the parameters that are being monitored about the patient but it also helps the doctor and the patient communicate with each other without the staff in the hospital being exposed to the risk of, uh, of, of contact and therefore of the virus.
1: So it looks like robots will play a much bigger role in our lives in the future. But how will humans cope with accepting that? And might humans ever misuse robotic technology? Mark Miskin.
0: I think the idea of having machines think for people is not—it's not that new, right? Like uh, your your computer does quite a lot of thinking for you, and we've all embraced that. We like that, right? Like I think we all like spell check, and we all like having calculators, and we all like having our days organized. It's a very low level form of thinking, I'll admit, but like for sure, I don't think there's a a new concept in having some level of, of intellectual capacity offloaded in machines. The question for us as researchers, as engineers, and as people as a society, right, is to make sure that if we're developing it, that the benefits outweigh the risks. And I think in the case of the stuff we're discussing, right, for sure, for self-driving cars, there's a good case you can make. If you can really make cars safer, if you can really make it that we don't have drunk drivers and we have less accidents, then I think that does that way. however scary it is. I think that's a better world to live in. I think the same is true for the tiny robots, right? You can talk about all these ways in which they they may be misused. I personally think a lot a lot of them are, are far-fetched but at the end of the day the prospect of being able to say heal somebody who's just lost nerve function in a car crash i think that's enormously positive and we should pursue that
1: preventing misuse is a challenge for all new technologies but perhaps the amazing technological advances will enable more control as well as what seems like endless possibilities
5: erin I think in the end, for all the things we've talked about, the robots are only limited by our imagination. And that's, to me, the most exciting thing about them. We could imagine a world where we don't need wheelchairs anymore. That's made possible through robots. We can imagine a solar system where we explore it remotely because we can't get there yet. We imagine a planet where we can start to actually push towards environmental sustainability. And that's, I think, going to be made possible through robots. So robots are the ultimate tool to address all of these problems in different form and different function. Where you know the only limit to what we can do with them is is what we can imagine them to do.
4: This was
3: a
5: BB technology outlet production.